Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 8. The Proclamation of John the Baptist. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The Labour Party spin doctor infamously remarked on the day of the 9-11 terrorist attacks back in 2001 that today might be a very good day to bury bad news. And whilst she was, with some justification, vilified by the press at the time. I think that in many ways her reaction to news management in the wake of tragedy was the product of a far wider and more long-standing culture of cynicism and opportunism in the world of news, media, spin and propaganda, and I'm not sure in the 22 years since all that much has changed. The question of good news days and bad news days, and indeed of what it is that we call good news and what it is that we, we call bad news, is not a straightforward question. It's not straightforwardly the moral difference between good and bad. The thing is, a good news story is rarely a good news story, if you see what I mean. Stories of good news are often confined to the final item on the local news and typically take the format of a lost puppy found style of reporting. It's very rare for the headline news to be good news. Rather, the stories that we want to hear are most often stories of tragedy and trauma, of wars and rumours of wars, stories of money and power and politics. These are the good news stories, but they're rarely good news. On the rare occasion that a headlining story is presented as good news, the cynic in me is always looking beneath the surface of the story for the spin, the propaganda, the vested interest. So what's going on here at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, 
where the coming of Jesus is described as being good news. Well, we've just, we've just had Christmas, did you notice? We've been telling stories of the birth of Jesus, drawing actually not on Mark's Gospel, because Mark's Gospel doesn't have the birth narrative, but drawing on Matthew and Luke's accounts. But we have been presenting the birth of Jesus, the coming of God in the person of Jesus, as glad tidings for the world. And here now today we have Mark's Gospel calling the advent of God good news for the world. What's going on? What does this mean to speak of the coming of Jesus as good news? Human births don't usually get this kind of publicity, with, you know, the occasional notable exceptions, such as the announcement of yet another royal baby. And, you know, whilst the news of a new human baby is always good news in and of itself, it's only really royal babies that end up being headline good news because of, you know, the power, the wealth and the privilege, etc. And, you know, it was ever thus. Back in the Roman world, the official announcement of the birth of a royal child to the emperor's family was trumpeted throughout the empire as, yes, you've guessed it, good news. The Roman propaganda machine would go into overdrive when an emperor had another child. They would eulogise the emperor as a divine man and the birth of their child as the birth of a god. There's an ancient inscription which reads, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful messages which have gone forth because of him. Glad tidings of comfort and joy indeed. The birth of an emperor's God child was good news for the empire because it ensured the perpetuation of the royal dynasty. And so then we get the first verse of Mark's Gospel written to a culture very familiar with the carefully managed good news of the emperor cult. And we find Mark beginning his gospel in this way. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can you hear how this is echoing what the emperor's publicity would have said every time there was a son of God born. Good news, the emperor, the God emperor has had a child. And Mark says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Here, right at the beginning of this gospel, in the very first line of the text, we find Mark setting up a conflict that will dominate everything that follows. And we're going to be staying with Mark's gospel between now and Easter in our Sunday sermons. Mark is serving notice to his readers right at the beginning of his gospel that in some way this story of Jesus will be one which challenges all of the apparatus of the Roman imperial uh, system. It's no longer in Mark's world the birth of an emperor's child that is good news for the empire. Rather, it is the coming of Jesus Christ God in human form, the Son of God. That is good news, not just for the empire, but for the whole world. Like John's Gospel, Mark doesn't offer us a birth narrative. We have to turn to Matthew and Luke for our singing shepherds, our angelic choirs and our visiting magi. 
But what Mark does give us is a dramatic introduction to the arrival of the Son of God in the course of human history. Mark presents the coming of Jesus as the advent of an anointed leader who is confirmed by God himself and who kind of bursts onto the scene of history, proclaiming a new kingdom, a kingdom which will challenge all of the might of the Roman kingdom, a new empire of God which will challenge all the might of the Roman empire. In other words, Mark's version of the advent of Jesus is, is described in such a way as to take dead aim at Caesar, the Roman emperor, and at all of the legitimating myths that supported the emperor's power. You see, from its very first line, Mark's gospel is deeply subversive. Good news in Roman times, as in our own time is all too often news of victory on the battlefield as the imperial armies march their way across the known world. In Roman times, the gift of Rome to the world was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was a gift that was given to a world that really had no choice but to accept the gift. The Roman armies came in and they took over and they said, you do it our way or we're gonna kill you. And our way is the peaceful way because it's the way that the emperor has decreed and if you worship the emperor as God and if you worship the Roman gods then you'll be fine. If you're not then we're going to kill you. That's the peace of Rome. It's peace built on military dominance. We live in a world that's addicted to news but as we've seen good news does not often make good news. A good or effective news story is one that hooks the viewer or the reader into wanting to know more. So news of battles won, terror threats foiled, economic victories and political standoffs are the staple diet of our news media and they do for us what the Roman propaganda machine did for the Roman plebeians. They sell us narratives by which we are invited to frame our lives. The good news that we are fed through the media is something that we are invited by that media, by the culture and society that we live in. We invited to use that to frame our lives. They invite us to rejoice in the good news of the protectionism of the empire that surrounds us, coming to us through secular deities of militarism and monarchy and the miracle of free market economics. And it is to us as it was to the world of the Romans that the Christ child comes and takes dead aim at what it is that we surround ourselves with and says that actually is not good news for you or anybody else. Good news is somewhere else. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And Mark would have us believe that Jesus comes to us as Jesus came to the first century in ways that subvert all of the narratives that might otherwise draw us into uh, complicity with the empires of our world. Mark takes us on a journey from the world of global domination to a world of those who see history from the other side. 
He invites us to step with him into the world of the underdog, the world of the dominated, the world of the refugee, the world of the alienated and the exiled. Mark wants us to learn to see the world differently to the way that we've always been told we ought to see it. And so he invokes the prophet Isaiah. And we hear a voice reading quotes from the prophet of the Jewish exile. Actually, I don't know if you've ever tried this, um, if you go tracking back quotes in the Bible. So, you know, we're told a quote from the prophet Isaiah, but if you go back to the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible to try and find the quote, it's not quite there, as, as Mark claims it is. Um, not only because he's uh, quoting from a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, whereas our modern Old Testament is based on a translation from a 10th century Hebrew text, but also because the first half of this quote that he gives us isn't from Isaiah at all. It's a mishmash of quotes from Exodus and Malachi. It's only the second part that's actually from the book of Isaiah. And just as an aside here for a moment, I do think the fact that Mark can take three quotes from three different places in the Old Testament and edit them together to form what he then presents as a unified quotation from Isaiah tells us a lot about the way in which the early followers of Jesus thought about their scriptures. Not for them some restrictive doctrine of scriptural inerrancy or any idea that the text of the Bible is immutable and universally applicable in all times and all places. Not for them some statement of faith that regards scripture as the sole and absolute authority in all matters of faith and practice, he says, quoting from the Evangelical Alliance statement of faith. Rather, in Mark, and as in common with the other gospel writers, the scriptures, their scriptures, which of course were the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we call it, these are holy stories that explore how and why God is at work in the world, drawing people to the divine and reshaping human history away from oppression and towards liberation. For them, scripture was more of an inspiration than it was itself inspired. It was there to engage with, to hear from, and to argue with. It was not there to settle arguments and close down conversation. And as those of us who are alert to some of the conversations that are going on in our denomination at the moment around sexuality, where people keep appealing back to the Bible as if that's going to solve it, it ain't, because that ain't what the Bible was for. The Bible is there to be engaged with, to be argued with, to be inspiring us always to move away from oppression and towards liberation. That's the sweep of it. And I just think it's rather neat that what Mark does here is he just randomly takes three quotes that suit his purposes, bungs them together, tells us they're from Isaiah, even when they aren't, um, because actually the point isn't about accuracy of quoting. The point is about the point. The point is that Jesus is subversive of any institutionalized power that oppresses humans. And in his day, it was the Roman Empire. Jesus is subversive of the cult that says you must worship the emperor. Jesus is subversive of the economics and the militarism of the Roman Empire. And I think 
you know, as we preach this then into our modern world, we might want to ask where the powers of oppression in our world, where militarism and economics are landing in the oppression of human beings. We might want to ask where racism and homophobia and transphobia are in our world and see how those systems are oppressing human beings. And then we might want to say, well, maybe Jesus is just as subversive of that stuff in our world as he was of the Roman Empire's systems of oppression. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the word redaction has come back into fashion over recent years. Sometimes government reports get published with key passages redacted in the interest of national security. Uh, in case you've missed this word, um, it's a word redacted that means to edit for publication. And it's a world that those of us who do biblical studies have been very familiar with for a long time. Because what we do is we look at the way in which the gospel writers edit their source material together in order to bring their different versions of the Jesus story into being. And so the scholarly discipline of redaction criticism, as it's known, looks at the motives for why things have been edited together in certain ways. However, the word redaction has arrived into more popular use, as I said, through the way in which government departments have responded to requests made under the Freedom of Information Act. Documents are released and so-called, but in redacted form, with uh, certain sections obliterated where their particular content is deemed unsuitable for public consumption. And this association with concealed statistics and government cover-ups has lent the word redaction something of an air of mystery and intrigue. It speaks of mystique and subversion. And this is exactly where Mark is taking us in his redaction, his editing of Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah. The Exodus reference and its equivalent passage in Malachi are combined and translated by Mark to read, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And here Mark is taking us into the world of the Jewish slaves in Egypt, making their journey through the wilderness of Sinai on their way to the promised land as they escape from slavery. The messenger who goes ahead of them through the wilderness is the one heralding the way for the people of God to make their journey of liberation. And Mark says, just as the messenger of God went ahead of the people through the wilderness of Sinai back in old times, so the messenger of God today goes ahead of the people of God, always leading them from freedom, sorry, from slavery to freedom. The story of emancipation of the end of slavery is deeply written not only into the Jewish story, the Hebrew story, but also into the story of those who follow Christ. And whether it's Egyptians at the time of the Exodus or Romans at the time of Mark's gospel or the various expressions of slavery that we have encountered in the more modern era from the American plantation owners of a bygone century to the ongoing civil rights struggle that Martin Luther King preached here about 62 years ago, to the sweatshops and brothels of our own time, those held in economic slavery by the empire of global capital. Mark's gospel is inviting us to hear the herald, the one who goes ahead, proclaiming release to the captives, release to those held in captivity, 
This is a subversive message because it is doing battle with the powers and principalities of our world that keep people enslaved, with the ideologies that keep people diminished. And so Mark introduces us to John the Baptist. The herald in the wilderness, living his marginal existence, surviving on locusts and honey. John is found in the very place where the Exodus people had fled as they left their slavery from Egypt in times gone by. He's found in the very place where Jesus will face his own temptations. He's found in the wilderness, the very place where Elijah sought sanctuary when hunted by political authorities. He's found in the wilderness, the place of solitude and loneliness and liminality. And it is from this place on the margins, this peripheral place, it is from there, from the wilderness, that the great challenge to the power of the centre emerges. The voice of the one proclaiming the good news of the coming of Jesus is heard echoing from the hills, not proclaimed in the streets of the capital city. If earthly power takes the centre ground, whether in Rome or Jerusalem or Westminster, the prophetic voice of challenge will always come from the margins. And all too often, the Christian church has tried to align itself with the power at the centre. We've tried to do our deals with empire, our deals with state church, our deals with power. And yet the prophetic voice of God is always heard from the margins. So if we want to hear the message of John the Baptist in our time, we need to be listening to the margins. According to the dominant Jewish nationalistic ideology of salvation history in the first century, Jerusalem was considered the centre of the world, the hub to which all nations would one day come. And Mark turns this on its head. Far from beginning his story of good news with a triumphal march on Zion, rather he tells of crowds fleeing to the margins to be baptised with a baptism of repentance. John baptises people, including Jesus, in the wilderness. Mark is setting the scene here for a conflict that will run through the gospel and will resolve itself at Easter when we get to the crucifixion story. But let's not jump too far ahead too soon. For now, we need to hear the good news of the coming of Jesus. And we hear that good news as it is proclaimed from those who are at the margins, from those who are on the receiving end of oppression. We hear it from Palestine, we hear it from Gaza, we hear it from those who are marginalised because of their ethnicity or their gender or their sexuality or their economic status. We hear it from those who are displaced, from the refugees, from the asylum seekers. This is where we hear the prophetic word of God coming to us. And it is here that we hear the good news of the coming of Jesus, which is that all expressions of 
illegitimate power, whether secular or sacred or some fusion of the two, are called to account by the voice of repentance from the wilderness. And so John the Baptist calls people to repent. He invites them to confess the sin of their complicity in the idolatrous powers of Rome and Jerusalem. And he baptizes them in the Jordan as they, like the Exodus people of old, pass through the waters of that river, making their own individual journey from old world to new, completing their pilgrimage from enslavement to the powers that be to freedom in the new kingdom that they are being called to bring into being. And if John's baptism of water in the wilderness sets up a challenge to the dominant powers of the world, the baptism of the Holy Spirit proclaimed by Jesus inaugurates a confrontation on a spiritual level with the underlying forces of idolatry that give rise to all of the earthly expressions of centralised authority. There is no darkness so dark as that which lurks in the human soul. And we have such endless capacity to wreak havoc in creation. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit shines the light of the Spirit of Christ into the darkest places of our souls and imaginings, bringing to light all that would otherwise eat away at our humanity, destroying us one day at a time until all that is left are the false gods of our own devising. This is what we are saved from. This is the good news for us. There is a better way of being human before God. Baptism, and you know, we've got a baptismal pool. I'm standing on top of it. If somebody hasn't been baptised and you would like to be baptised, talk to me about it. We'll do it. But baptism is not simply about saying we're sorry to God for the wrong things we have done, although it is that. It's about more than that. Baptism is about opening ourselves to the transformative power of the Spirit of Christ that takes us away from the centre, away from our dreams of power and our fantasies of success. The Spirit takes us as the Spirit took John and the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness where dreams are transformed and fantasies are redeemed. And it's only as we're baptised to be a marginal people that we can effect true change in the world. The challenge here at the beginning of Mark's Gospel then I think is clear. It is asking us to consider in what way we will regard the coming of Jesus to the world as good news. If we see the coming of Jesus in the advent of power, to transform society from the centre by some forceful application of Christian values, then I'm afraid we are on the side of Rome and Jerusalem. We are not with John the Baptist. If, however, we hear the one who comes to us calling us to the wilderness to repent of our sins and calling us to the baptism of water and the Holy Spirit, then we can hear the one crying in the wilderness. The waters of the baptism of John speak to us, reminding us maybe of the promises we ourselves made in years gone by at our own baptisms. But above all, 
always calling us to the margins, calling us to the wilderness, calling us to the land beyond the Jordan, calling us to repentance of our worship of other gods, calling us to receive afresh the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who opens within us, within me, within you, the streams of living water that lead us to eternal life. This is the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Eternal God of each present moment, we come before you at the turning of another year with diverse emotions and tentative hope. The past and the future meet in this day and lay themselves before us for prayerful pondering. As we look back over the last year, we see in our lives and in the lives of those we love that most human combination of joy and sorrow and love and loss and laughter and tears. And so we hold before you now those whom you bring to our minds, Loved ones we have lost. And loved ones we have discovered. Friends who have suffered. And friends who have rejoiced. Those who have borne burdens. And those who have found release. And we trust that you have been present to all these, our varied experiences of life, drawing all things together in your great love. As we look to the coming year, we offer you our hopes and our dreams, our resolution and our resolve. And yet we recognize that despite our best efforts, we will not be the people you have called us to be. But we hold to the hope that by your grace, we will be the people you have created us to be. And so we pray for the uncertainty of tomorrow. And we trust that you will be present with us, whatever the future may hold as you draw all things together in your great love. But most of all, we turn our prayers to the needs of this day, because yesterday is gone and cannot be changed, and tomorrow will bring enough worries of its own. So we pray for the world to which you have come in Jesus Christ, bringing forgiveness where there is guilt, and the hope of new life where there is suffering and death. We commit to your loving care all those who face tomorrow with no hope because their situation today is hopeless. And we think particularly of refugees, asylum seekers, 
and all people displaced by war or climate change. Renew in us a concern for the weak and the vulnerable and give us courage to speak up for the voiceless, to speak out against violence in all its forms and to speak of the necessity to care for all creation. We pray for those who have the authority to effect change on a global scale, for politicians and business leaders, for the rich and the powerful, the articulate and the influential. May they be given the gift of empathy and the courage to use their power for the good of the many. Renew in us a passion for change and an unwillingness to acquiesce. Give us the courage to take action against powers that coerce and control. And may we learn to be wise in the ways we speak and act as we seek to play our part in the coming of your kingdom of love, justice and peace. So we pray for our church, for your gathered people in this place. We thank you for one another in all our glorious diversity. And we recommit ourselves to each other as sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray for those who have left our fellowship over this last year and for those who have joined it. May we know today who we are created to be. And may we learn what it is to be true to the calling you have placed on us. Help us to love each other. To welcome new people with kindness, to serve one another with grace and to forgive one another with sincerity. May our church over this coming year be a place of safety for those who are vulnerable and a place of challenge for those who are comfortable. May we be a community of inclusion for those who are excluded and a community of defiance for those who would exclude. May we be humble in the face of our own failings, but bold in the face of those who fail others. May we be your people in this place, at this time, created by you and called to live lives of courageous love. May we be good news, as Jesus Christ is good news for us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us for works of love and service. Amen. Whatever this day holds, remember that you are blessed by God, supported by God and strengthened by God. When the wilderness looms, take comfort in God's love, that your life may affirm the good news of Jesus Christ. You are beloved. Amen.